So next Sunday, we're going to be in an Advent sermon series. The word Advent is a word that we don't regularly use um, in our Christian vocabulary. Uh, it, it just simply means the, the appearance, the first appearing of Jesus. So the first Advent would be the incarnation, the, the birth of Christ. The second Advent is where Jesus will return to gather those who know him to himself. And so we're going to be in that. I'm going to preach a couple times. Pastor Cody will preach once, and Pastor Brian McCoy is going to preach and one of the things we want to do each Sunday, if you have downloaded the app, our church app, and if you need instructions on how to do that, you can go to guest services, call our church office, and get instructions on the church app. Um, you should have received an app uh, notification actually right now. You can even check, you can check your phone. And it's, there's going to be a video that we're going to send to you like that one. Um, it'll be about three to four minutes. And we like it to engage in what we'd call a family devotion. That doesn't mean uh, this is not just for young parents. It's for anybody and everybody. It doesn't matter your age. And oftentimes when you hear the phrase family devotion, it might be a little intimidating. You might think like me, hey, where do I start? What do I do? I don't know if I'm trained in this. What questions am I going to ask? And so we wanted to make it really easy for you. Uh, you'll have a video, three to four minutes, and there'll be two to three questions that you can ask. It'll be right there on your phone. And uh, we hope that you'll do that. We really believe that having a rhythm in your life where you're talking to your own heart and to your kids or your grandkids, your spouse about the things of God is going to help us be mindful of whose we are and to walk with Jesus. We don't want to just be a person who checks in on a Sunday morning, gets our fill, and um, doesn't engage with the truth of God. We want to seek to engage Jesus in every facet of our life, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and help others. And so this is just a little tool. Every Sunday, you'll get a notification with a video and some questions, and we hope that you'll just engage in a two, three, four-minute family devotion with uh, your spouse, your, your kids, grandkids, all right? Hey, we're in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. I put this board back up because, again, I think it's a helpful reminder um, of what we're going to do this morning. There is a clear line to the gospel. We don't hear that phrase a lot, but a clear line to the gospel. As we think about the text today, Genesis 22, we go up to the them and the then who Genesis 22 was written to. And then we, what we want to do, oftentimes we think about Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. So is God calling me to model what Abraham did to, to be willing to sacrifice my child or my children? The answer is no. So we want to do theological reflection. We want to think about the cross. And as we think about the cross and we go down, what does it mean for us today? And so I'll hopefully try to convey that in this sermon. What I want to do, and I hope, I was reading through this last night here at the church building and reading through it this morning, and I just got a little, my, my emotions were stirred as I was thinking about this truth. And I hope that your emotions are stirred um, as we walk through this text and I preach this sermon. Uh, the sermon is going to culminate and come to bear upon an application called the Lord's Supper. Um, we've got some individuals who will be passing that out momentarily. And I hope that as we approach the Lord's Supper, you are excited about what Jesus has done. Here's a couple questions that I want to ask you before we walk through Genesis 22. We'll stand here in just a moment and read the scriptures together. But what do you need to have to be happy? I really appreciate, I don't know her name, um, talking about if we could be happy all the time. That was a really mature answer. Uh, who, her parents are doing a great job. What is it that you must have to be happy? What do you have to have to be content? What's a top priority in your life? 
what, or another way to ask it, what apart from God do you believe you need in order to make you happy, to make your life meaningful? Financial gain, significance, relevance, respect, more patience at your practice, more money, whatever it might be. And here's what we've looked at the last several weeks. Here's the landscape of Genesis. Lot's wife, right? Lot's wife. What did Lot's wife want? We don't really know what she wanted, but we know that she looked back, right? The angel gave them very specific instructions. Don't look back. She looked back. Most commentators think that she longed for Sodom. That was where her friends were, her life, the city she left behind. For Lot's daughters, we won't go into that act, but Lot's daughters wanted um, the family line to be continued. And so they engaged in a pretty wicked act there in Genesis chapter 20. So for Lot's daughters, what did they want? They wanted children. For Abraham, what did Abraham want? Self-preservation, safety, protection. Lot feared, Lot's wife feared leaving the city. Lot's daughters feared not having children. Abraham feared not having protection and safety. Fear, I want something and I'm not going to get it or I'm not getting it and I am undone. I fear not getting that. And I want it so desperately that when I don't get it, I am undone. We're to fear the Lord, to reverence the Lord, to love Him above all things and persons. Matthew 6, 19, Matthew 6, 23-24, that Jesus is to be our greatest treasure, that we're to treasure Him above all things and all persons. As you stand with me, we're going to read Genesis 22. There's six or seven slides there that we're going to read all of Genesis 22, the big idea, the main point is to trust in the Father for salvation. Trust in the Father for salvation. As is our custom, I'll finish reading the text and then I'll say this is God's word and if you see fit, um, we'll say together, thanks be to God. So let's read verses 1 through 19 together. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. 
He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. God is going to call Abraham to trust in him fully. I love what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter that we are to set our hope fully on the Lord. When Peter writes that in his letter, he's writing in such a way that at times we can have our hope not fully on the Lord, partially or minimally on the Lord, but we are to have our faith fully on the Lord. And Abraham's life up to this point has been training, if you will, or preparation for this call of obedience that God is going to place on Abraham's life. He had called him to leave a land that he was going to show him. He called him to leave his vocation, to leave his family, to leave his relationships. And God was calling him again to go in faith, this time not so much to a place, though there was a place, but to sacrifice his own son, the one son whom the blessing and the promise that God had made to Abraham all throughout Scripture, Genesis 12, culminating in Genesis 22, the blessing and the promise was going to come through Isaac sacrificing Isaac. Now, modern ears, the modern mind, might initially or immediately ask the question, you want me to believe in a Jesus that has the Bible as its book where God instructs one of your patriarchs to go and sacrifice his son whom God had promised he would give him and once he finally gives to Abraham and Sarah, he wants him to give up his child. Well, yes and no, right? Yes and no. We know from the scriptures that God did this in verses 1 through 2 to test Abraham, right? The narrator knows that. Moses knows that. You and I know that. Abraham does not know that. Is Abraham serving God because of the blessings that God is going to bestow upon him uh, because of the promise? Or is he serving God because he's God? Was Abraham willing to obey God even if it meant, even if it meant that God might not seemingly fulfill his purposes? If you were to go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, the writer of Hebrews informs us that Abraham went forward with this act of obedience knowing that God could even raise people from the dead. We don't have that in Genesis 22. We have that in Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 11 informs us of what's going on in Abraham's mind. Now, there are truths about how to interpret the Bible 
there's different tools, and there's, there's a tool called, or a, a way of interpreting the Bible, it's called hermeneutics. It's a big, fancy $3 word, hermeneutics, the study of the interpretation of the Bible. And each and every week, when someone stands up here to preach the Bible, they are called by God to give the meaning of the text. Oftentimes, we want to go right to application, but we're to walk through and convey, and by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, to convey, here's the meaning of the text. There's another closely related application that theologians and pastors and commentators teach that's totally appropriate as we're gleaning truths from the Bible. It's called implications. So the meaning of the text here in Genesis 22 is that God will provide salvation. Trust the Father for salvation. Trust the Father for his provision. There's all sorts of applications or implications that we can glean from the text. So let me give you an example of an implication. I think you'll maybe see what I mean a little more clearly. Most people know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that anybody who believes in Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life, have eternal life. The point of that verse is to show the magnanimous love of the Father, this big-hearted love that the Father has for the world, that God and his love uh, puts together a plan whereby his only son is going to come and die for the sins of the world. And if anybody, anybody believes in Jesus, you can be saved. You can have eternal life. There's the point of John through 16. An implication of John through 16 is that we need to be evangelistic, right? That's not the point of John through 16. The point is to show the magnanimous love of the Father that he has for the world and what Jesus has done. But an implication, that's not the original meaning, but it's certainly an application we can glean from the text is we want to go tell people about this love. We want to be evangelistic. We want to be engaged in evangelism. When you think of Genesis 22, there are lots of implications. Here's some that I thought of. What do you treasure? I opened up with several questions. If God were to take away the possessions that you own, would you still serve him? Right? That's right there in the narrative. God instructs Abraham to go to the land of Moriah to sacrifice his son to test where is his heart. If God were to take away all your possessions, would you still serve him? If something happened to your spouse, would you still serve the Lord? I was talking with a friend of mine. He owned a sports card store. I collect baseball cards. I know it's kind of childish, but... I don't really care. And we got some money from some friends of ours, and my wife said, hey, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go buy some baseball cards. This is not when I was 16. This is when I was like 32, okay? So I went to this store and got to know the owner of the store. We struck up a friendship for over three years, and he was very transparent with me. I got to share the gospel with him many times, um, came to our church activities. His daughter played with our daughter, and he had lost a daughter to cancer. She was about 14 years old. And he was angry with God. And I don't empathize, I don't identify, but I, I can only imagine. But he was angry, and that anger hindered him from seeing any truth in his life. And so at about year four, I looked at him and I said, your anger with what has happened to your daughter is preventing you from becoming a Christian. You want her back more than you want anything. You say, how cold-hearted could you be? I wasn't cold-hearted. 
four years. I don't drop something like that on the aisle seven and fries when I meet somebody. Four years. And if you don't ever have the conversation, you're not loving people. What's more important than heaven and hell? Nothing. So after four years of loving him and buying baseball cards when I didn't have money, I said, hey, I, I just want to have an honest conversation. You want her more than anything, and it's preventing you from seeing how God loves you. And by the way, in the Christian faith, the Christian faith is what gives purpose to life. You're currently in a worldview, in a way you view the life. There is no rhyme or reason to what happens in life. The Bible at least gives us some semblance of hope and direction and sovereignty and providence from the good sovereign hand of the Lord. So what if you lost all your possessions? What if you lost your spouse, your children, your job? Would you still serve the Lord? What if God called you to a ministry where you poured out your life year after year after year and you never saw any fruit? What if you shared the gospel with someone not one time, not two times, but over a lifetime and they continued to reject you? Would it embitter you and frustrate you and cause resentment in your soul towards the Lord? Why do we serve the Lord? Why do we follow the Lord? Why do we believe in the Lord? Because we get Him. Because we get Him. He's the only thing that's promised. He's the only thing that's promised. And by the way, this isn't theoretical. Well, what would happen if a spouse or a child or possessions? This isn't theoretical. For many Christians over the history of Christendom, this has been their life. They've lost a spouse. They've lost a child. And not just missionaries on international land. There have been Christians, ordinary Christians, regular Christians, who go to a regular job, who aren't overseas, who have had tragedies hit their life, and their faith has been rocked. And yet, some of them are my friends. They walk in step with the Father. Verse 1 tells us that God tested Abraham. Testing reveals what a person is like. God did this to Israel. Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. The Bible says to see, quote, whether they will follow my instructions or not. God says, I'm going to test you, not tempt you. I'm going to test you to see if you will follow my instructions or not. How does Abraham respond to the test? Verses 3 through 4, what does he do? He gets up early in the morning. He saddles his donkey, takes two young men as well as his son. He cuts the wood. Now, what's interesting is that the land of Moriah was not one day's travel away, was not two days' travel away. It was three days' travel away. Why is that significant to know the background? Because oftentimes when we make a commitment to be obedient and trust and follow God, what happens in the minutes after our commitment of obedience we've made? Ooh, ooh, I'm not so sure about that. I don't know if I really want to do that. I know I've made this decision, but what are the ramifications going to be? What are people going to think? How are people going to respond? Yet three days travel to the land of Moriah, to the mountain that God was going to show Abraham. He's there with his two young men and his son and the wood that he chopped for the burnt offering that Isaac was going to be on the altar. Abraham trusted in the Father. Faith moved him to action. 
faith moves us to move, right? If you have saving faith, it is a faith that moves you. Complacency is not our default setting as a believer. We are to be moving by God's grace, with His help, with the work of the Spirit, the power of the goodness of Christ. We have faith in Christ, and by God's grace we've been saved, and faith moves us to move. And the narrator, Moses, painstakingly wants the reader, the listener, Israel, as well as us, to know what this point in the narrative is all about. He uses the word son ten times in Genesis 22. Ten times. The focal point of the chapter is Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, Isaac, your only son. The word son is mentioned ten times, showing the severity of the test at hand. Burnt offering is used six times. The word wood is used five times. The word place is used four times. And the word provide is used three times. What's the big idea? The big idea is the Father is going to provide salvation. So trust in Him. Where is Abraham's faith? Where was his trust? The Bible tells us in verse 11 through 12 that Abraham passed this test. His faith was evidently in God. Trust was in God. So let me give you two implications, right? Not the point of the text, but two truths that we can glean that are present in the text. Two truths. Treasure and hope. Treasure and hope. I mentioned this last week at the end of the sermon. I mentioned it at the beginning. What do you treasure? Like, what do you really love and long for? What do you want in your life that if, if that was removed, your life would seemingly be miserable and you would live a life of hopelessness? What do you treasure? What do you hope in? If you were to read Matthew 19, 28-29, Jesus talks about his followers might be called to give up things. Certainly a parallel to Genesis 22 in terms of what God was calling, testing Abraham to give up might be called to give up things, roles, relationships, possessions, dreams that we thought at one time God had for us. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 19 and what God tells Abraham in Genesis 22 and verses 11 through 12 and following that our inheritance is in heaven, kept by the power of God, guarded by our faith, as Peter writes in 1 Peter. What do you treasure and what do you hope and the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, as we look back into Genesis 22, Abram had a, had a treasure, had a treasuring of God, and had a hope in God so much so that he was willing to go through this test to sacrifice his son, knowing that that would not be something that God ultimately would have him come through because he denounces child sacrifice. But he wanted to see where is Abraham's heart. And he hoped in God so much so, the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham knew that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. What do you treasure? What do you hope in? Certainly as we read Genesis 22, that should be front and center. But the point, the point of Genesis 22 is that we're to trust in the Father for his provision, for his salvation. And we see in Genesis 22, with a clear line to the gospel, this 
truth of substitutionary atonement. Atonement to repair. To repair something that was that needs to be repaired. And we need somebody to step into our place. You see that in Genesis 22. You see it all throughout the scriptures. You see it certainly in the person, the work of Christ. Because of our guilt, because of our condemnation, a just God simply can't shrug off sins. It's not enough to be sorry or contrite for our sins. We would never allow an earthly judge to let a wrongdoer go scot-free just because he or she was contrite or broken. And what makes us think, if we think that about an earthly judge, what makes us think that a heavenly judge who is good and sovereign and holy would do anything less? And even when we forgive personal wrongs against us, we can't simply forgive without cost. I can't forgive somebody without cost. You can't forgive me without some cost to yourself. If someone harms us and takes our money or takes our happiness or takes our reputation, we can either make them pay us back or we can choose to forgive them, which means if we choose to forgive them, we absorb the cost to ourselves without monetary compensation, without remuneration. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, the only one who lived a perfect life. And at the end of his life, he deserved blessing and acceptance. At the end of our life, we deserve rejection and condemnation. And yet, on the cross, Jesus dies in our place, and the rejection and condemnation that we deserve, he takes upon himself. So that when we believe in him, what do we get? We get what Jesus deserved. Blessing and acceptance. Substitution. Somebody giving their life for another. It's right there in Genesis 22. I, I've not read the book, A Tale of Two Cities. I think I may have been instructed to read the book in English my senior year, but I did not read it. I have this horrible tendency in the first two or three pages, if I don't fall madly in love with the book, I, I cast it aside. Life is too short to read boring books. But A Tale of Two Cities is a classic, so you should read it. And I'll read it as well. But you know the story if you read it. Two men and one woman. Charles and Sidney loved a woman named Lucy, right? The problem is that Lucy only loved Charles, not Sidney. The French Revolution happens, and Charles is captured, thrown into prison, and Sidney, knowing that the woman he loves does not love him, but loves Charles. Sidney goes to the prison. Uh, drugs Charles, has Charles carried away, and takes his place where he is eventually going to go to the guillotine. There is a woman watching this take place, knowing that this man has taken the place of another man, and he's going to die. And she comes over to him and says, Will you hold my hands while I have strength for my imminent death? Substitutionary sacrifice is wildly powerful. And that's what Jesus has done for us. The truth and the sacrifice and the substitution of Christ changes everything in life. Changes everything. God will provide, Abraham says, is really the turning point, not of the story. But it's a recapitulation. It's a restatement of what God had said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
It's what he's saying in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And, and when God remembered Abraham, he's saying God is going to provide. That is the story of Christ. That's the story of our faith. God has provided something for us that we could not provide for ourselves. It's the heart of the message of the narrative, but also for Israel who's hearing the story. Think about their desert journey into the promised land. They're going to possess a land of their own in spite of their enemies, and they've just learned, as Abraham did, God is going to provide one way or another. God's promises are going to stand forever. I mean, don't we need to continually learn this truth and relearn this truth? We walk by faith, trusting that God is going to provide salvation for us. How are you going to do it? How are you going to be sustained? In what manner is your faith going to influence your life? How will you endure such difficulties? I think it's God honoring to say, I'm not sure it's going to be really difficult, but I do know that God is faithful. When God says he's going to do something, he does it every single time. He does it every single time. As the Israelites heard this story, again, they're the original audience, right? The them then, as they heard this story, Genesis 22, they would have been reminded of what took place with the, fat, the, the Passover feast that they first celebrated in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, and they're saved by the blood of a lamb. A lamb died instead of the firstborn of Israel. Still later, the sacrifices at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the portable dwelling of God among the people. Later, the temple, the permanent structure where God dwelled. God had the same message. He instructed Israel to offer to him a burnt offering, just like he instructed Abraham to instruct Israel to participate in a burnt offering of two male lambs a year old and without blemish, one in the morning and one at twilight. Again, again a lamb died so that Israel might live. Thankfully, God didn't ask Abraham to go through with the sacrifice, but one dark Friday God would provide, and just as Abraham walked up that hill with his son, with the wood in his hands, ready to partake in this burnt offering, and God stayed the knife and told him to stop, because this child was going to be the child that the promise of blessing was going to come through, and there was going to be this ultimate child who was going to bring salvation and rescue and blessing to the world. The beloved son of the Father, Jesus, would willingly walk up the hill of Golgotha, carrying the wood on his back, and there he would be slain to save and rescue the world. It's awesome. So don't read the Bible as a set of rules. The Bible is not meant to make you a better person. Don't read the Bible as a guidebook. Basic instructions before leaving earth. You know, all the little neat little things that we get and the trinkets that Lifeway sells. If you read the Bible just as a guidebook or a set of rules, it's going to crumble between your fingers and give you a standard that you endlessly cannot meet. And it will create misery and hopelessness in your life. But when you read the scripture, 
as Israel read and heard the scriptures, as is intended to be read, we see the scriptures are a testimony to who? Jesus. Every page points our hearts to him. And suddenly and immediately, we see the truth that is plastered all over the Bible. John the Baptist saw it in John chapter 1. And what does he say? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We look at Jesus, we go back to Genesis 22, and we know it was never really about Isaac. It points us forward to the person and the work and the sacrifice of Jesus so that we could understand the Father will always provide salvation. He has to do it because we can't. So here's what we're going to do for the next several minutes. There's going to be some prompts on the screen, some Lord's Supper prompts. The men are going to come, the men or the women are going to come and pass out the Lord's Supper. And there's three prompts there. And we believe the Lord's Supper, as I've said many times, but this is your first time and it serves as a reminder to me, the Lord's Supper is for those who are Christians. What's it mean to be a Christian? Let me ask you this question. Are you ready to be a Christian? Are you ready to become a Christian? What do I need to do? Simply this. Transfer trust from yourself to Jesus. If somebody says, when you ask the question, are you ready to become a Christian? They say, I'm not sure I'm ready. There's some things I need to clean up. I don't, they're, they're not ready. If a person says, I'm ready to trust in Jesus for salvation, that's what it means to be a Christian. Realize that we cannot save ourselves and we trust in the provision of the Father found in the person and the work of Jesus. And so the Lord's Supper is for anyone and everyone who is a believer in Jesus. You guys can go ahead and come on and pass out the elements. We believe it's symbolic. Um, I just got done reading a book on Luther. We don't believe that the bread becomes the body. We don't believe that the juice becomes the blood or there's some mystical, physical manifestation. We believe it's symbolic. It's a symbol. Symbols are powerful. Symbols are a picture of something more profound, more important, and they point us to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you're a believer and you're trusting in Jesus, we want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper. I do not believe everybody in the room is a Christian. So if you've got questions, you want to talk to me, I'll be up here after the service. I would love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian, and you can become a Christian today. All right? There's three prompts there that we want you to read to yourself, pray through Father, help me to see the Bible as a story that points forward to and culminates in your son Jesus. It's not just a guidebook, though there are certainly ways that the Bible guides us. It's not just a rule book, though there are certainly rules. It's not just a way that the Bible teaches about morality, though it does teach about morality. It is about Jesus. Father, help me see the Bible anew. Spirit, search me and know me and find anything unclean in me. We want to take the Lord's Supper in a in a manner that's reverent, and if there's sin in our hearts, if we sin against him, sin against others, we want to confess that. To confess means to agree with God. Spirit, search my heart. And then, Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice you made for me. I was listening to a song this morning by Lauren Daigle. What did I ever deserve to have this love? We've done nothing to deserve the love of the Father. Man, what a glorious truth that when we did not and when we still don't deserve the love of the Father, He pours out His love for us. So take some time to confess sin. Take some time to celebrate what God has done in Christ. All right, And then we'll come up and take the Lord's Supper.
together.